Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Action Addicts Podcast. I'm your host Scott Wiley, and we're back. As you will have seen by the title of today's episode, we are going to be talking about a classic today. Yes, that's right, we're going to be talking about the 80s cult classic Roadhouse, starring Patrick Swayze and a bunch of other cool people that we're going to get into in a minute with my guest for today, Patrick Bartlett. I am super excited to finally get this episode out. It's uh, taken a little bit longer than I originally planned. I was actually trying to get this to come out much closer to when the Marshall Teague conversation with episode came out. Because, you know, Marshall Teague is in Roadhouse. And as you'll hear me say in a minute, it was kind of because of that conversation that I suddenly really had the urge to rewatch Roadhouse for the first time in a while. And I'm glad I did because it reminded me just how much I personally enjoy this film. And also, spoiler alert, it's aged really damn well, at least in my opinion. So if somehow you've never seen this film, I'm going to say right now, this is a long conversation, go and watch the film first. It shouldn't be hard to find, it's been re-released multiple times, it might be on a streaming platform wherever you are in the world, but honestly, if somehow you've made it this far in life as an action film fan and you've not seen Roadhouse, I'd recommend it. Patrick Swayze is the unlikely lead, and he completely crushes the role. Sam Elliott also crushes his role. Everybody involved just is, you know, hitting everything that's thrown at them. And if you've seen this film, but like me, it's been a while since you've seen it, you might be going, hmm, hmm. I remember it being badass and cool, but... That was a number of years ago, man. It probably isn't as good as I remember. The fights probably aren't that great, and, you know, it's probably not aged that well. No, no, it's still just as good as you remember, provided that you, you know, take into account that this is a film from the 80s. Depending on what expectations you place on it, obviously your mileage will vary. But from my point of view, this is a film that has martial arts choreography by Benny the Jet Arquides, who was also Patrick Swayze's trainer for the role, and he was heavily, heavily, heavily involved in all of the fight sequences, and it shows. Which, in my opinion, is one of the reasons why this film has aged so gracefully, because Benny did choreography that is timeless, and it perfectly blends entertainment and, dare I say, realism even though it's not, but you know, that that's like, that kind of more gritty, grounded, realistic style, which means that you're not judging the choreography so harshly, because it's not trying to be a Chuck Norris film, a Steven Seagal film, you know, insert badass that takes on a hundred fighters here. And I also think that that's why I, a lot of people connect to it in a way that maybe people don't connect to every action film. No matter how charismatic your lead may be, if 
you cannot relate to the situation that they're putting themselves in, I feel like there are certain people that just cannot engage with the material. We also kind of cover that, uh, which you've probably heard me talk about before, especially if you've just been listening to me in general, or we've interacted on social media. But Patrick also kind of weighed in on this and kind of actually started us down this road. So I mostly kind of just let him give his opinion because it's very similar to mine and I don't want to just, you know, it's it's a long enough episode. You don't need me to reiterate what Patrick said. So with that said, I hope you're excited for this one. This is a true classic. This is one of the big ones that I've been excited to cover. It still feels like a special, unique film because... It's Patrick Swayze, it's Roadhouse, it's one of those films that was just, had this aura growing up, and it still has it, man. Maybe it's nostalgia speaking, I don't know, but to me, it's still got it. Anyway, here's myself and Patrick talking about it, enjoy, I'll see you for the outro. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, here we are. We are back. We're in the live room. And, as you will have seen by the title of this episode, we are going to be discussing Roadhouse. Which, for those of you who grew up in an era before Family Guy existed, yes, it's a real film. No, it's not just a meme that Peter Griffin says. And joining me today, we have Patrick Bartlett. How are you doing, Pat? I am good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. The 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 time difference always gets me. I'm gonna. I, I've decided I'm gonna make an encyclopedia because every American guest I have, I swear, you all live in different time zones just to make life awkward for me to know. Apparently not, Andy, because I tried to like help you that time, and I was just like, and I made it more confusing because I was like, Andy, you could, you're in a different time zone, right? So like we're out of different times, and then it got really <laughs> fucking weird. And I was just like, oh, I had no idea because I live in a stupid country where they're just like, they draw the lines arbitrarily. Yep, yep, I, I, I've given up trying to understand it. But either way, you're here now, so it's all good. Yes. So, for those of you who are unaware, I may have said this in the intro, but I'm going to say it now in case I don't. This was very much prompted by the fact that on the Action Addicts, not that long ago, at the time of recording, we had Marshall Teague on the show, and he was an absolute blast. If you haven't listened to that discussion, interview, conversation, whatever you want to call it, I highly recommend going and doing so, because it is very enjoyable. Marshall was a great guy. And he was talking about Roadhouse, and I'll be honest, I hadn't watched Roadhouse for years. But really? when we were... Yeah. When we Holy were talking shit. about it, we we uh he kind of reignited my memories of it, and I was like, I'm gonna go rewatch it. Like I, it's totally Marshall's fault. And then I rewatched it, and I was like, Wow, I'd forgotten how much I love this film, and more importantly, I'd forgotten how much of Dalton's life philosophy and approaches to everything very much was me growing up and. Now I remember where I got a lot of it from, and more importantly, probably where my dad got it from. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Pat? When was the last time you watched this before I'd uh, said, let's do an episode? Oh, I mean, definitely recently, because I don't remember exactly when, but like, I tend to do it like at least every couple of years, um, because it just, I mean, I I definitely, I want to say I watched it around the time they released the Vinegar Syndrome one, even though I don't have the Vinegar Syndrome one. I do want it, but I don't have the 4K yet. Um, But... I do watch it pretty often because it's funny. Like I never watched it like growing up. It wasn't until um, 
I want to say like 2004 because they did uh the, the Clerks X um DVD where like Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier talk about in their like Clerks intro they talk about like Roadhouse and like compare like uh Jeff Healy to Daredevil and stuff and I was like I have never seen that film but it sounds fucking amazing and so like I watched it with my friend Timmy and we were both like staring at it kind of gobsmacked like I don't know if this is good but it's fucking great like I was it's like it's good by accident somehow I don't know how this happened so like every so often like at least usually like annually or like biannually I like tend to rewatch Roadhouse because it's just it's like that and Point Break are like pure joy to me like there's pure action joy that's interesting I can remember the first time I watched this I watched it in the 90s it was one of those films that um, if you were, say, like a film kid or an action kid or, or a teenager, whatever, however you want to call yourself, uh, obviously, I know we're different in age, but for me, teenager stroke kid, it's one of those films that would kind of like give you some street cred. Because I can remember my, my best mate who I've known for decades, he also had watched Roadhouse, you know, when he was a kid. And I can remember the first time we like really started to get to know each other, we talked about Schwarzenegger films, Stallone films, uh, the the 80s sort of TV shows like Airwolf and Knight Rider, all, all the usual suspects. And then he, he was just like, oh, you know, have you heard of uh, this, this film, though? Because not many people have heard of it. And I, as soon as he said that, I just looked at him and went, Roadhouse. And he was like, oh my God. And we've been friends ever since. But I remember like getting the full warning about watching Roadhouse. Like, you know, it's, it's very mature. And, you know, you, you, you gotta be like, uh, uh, an adult to handle it. And like a guy gets <laughs> his throat ripped out. And I was like, yes, I'm ready. Give it to me. <laughs> I don't know that I would ever declare Roadhouse as a mature film, but like, okay, rock on. Well, I think it's because, and this is actually something that we'll get into, it's the tone of the film. Uh, you know, bearing in mind that this probably would have been one of the earliest films that I would have watched with exposed female genitalia. And, <laughs> okay. And, it, you know, Pretty much every Patrick Swayze film, you're gonna see his ass in it. Pretty kind of like Van Damme, to be honest. Uh, and it's just, it, you know, when you go back and rewatch it now, it probably, you know, it's it's not quite as serious as I remember it. But the fact that it's about being a, you know, like essentially a bouncer in a nightclub or whatever you want to call it, as opposed to say a superhuman commando that can kill hundreds of guys with just, you know, the flick of his wrist. By comparison to those sorts of films, Roadhouse does kind of feel a lot more realistic and grounded. It's fucking not. I'm saying I'm that say now. Yes and no. Because like, <laughs> it's like it's like that's my whole thing. Is like the movie basically establishes very early on that Dalton, they say he's the best bouncer slash cooler, whatever. How does one establish that you are the best bouncer? In any medium, even like the best bouncer of a club. How do you determine this? I don't know. And then he says, no, no, Wade Barrett is in fact the best. So apparently there is some sort of metric that I'm not aware of. But I was just like watching this movie. Like I was just like, this is the most psychotic thing. I don't know how to, I tried to explain this movie to people that I watched it with them beforehand. I'm like, okay, so walking into this, I'm just going to warn you in advance. It's about the best bouncer in the world. And I also don't know how you determine the best bouncer in the world, but you gotta just go with it. You have to go with it and enjoy it. 
Well, the funny thing is as well is that technically speaking, he's not even a bouncer. He's a cooler. Yes, fine, whatever. Like it's like he the the the, the top bouncer of the club apparently is the cooler. I don't know. Well, see, this is the thing. Like, I don't know because it's American and I'm not American. Don't lump me into that. That has nothing to do with America. I got no, 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 no. Let, no, let no. me finish. Okay, fine. <laughs> I will not be like this. Is this weird roadhouse thing? Is not this an American thing? I don't. I don't think it exists in any culture. Well, no, that's what I was just going to say. I don't know if the role of cooler, which in, you know, it, it makes sense to me what his role is. I don't know if that role did exist, has existed, still exists. I know nothing about that particular industry, but I do know that it doesn't exist, for the most part, anyway, in UK security when it comes to, like, clubs and stuff. However, again, I wasn't uh, around going to nightclubs in the 80s, so for all I know, there might have been these sorts of people back then, because a lot changes from decade to decade. So I'm not saying... That there aren't going to be people out there that are going to be like, no, I, I had this job, man. I had that job. You don't fuck with me. There, there might be people like that. I don't know. I don't much care. I'm not, I'm not interested in the realism because I love this film. And the fact oh, that, yes. you know, the fact that it's got Patrick Swayze, the dancer, as the lead tough guy just makes me so happy because that guy, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, it's a shame that he died at such a young age and, you know, he had so much more to give us. And I was really enjoying the TV show that he was making when yep, he unfortunately Beast, yeah. did. Pa yeah, yeah, The Beast, when it, when he passed mm -hmm. away. But going back and rewatching all of his films like over the last couple of years, really, it, it kind of started with my partner. And I know this won't shock anybody. She really wanted to rewatch Dirty Dancing. And uh, that kind of then... <laughs> That kind of then carried on and uh, a sort of Patrick Swayze sort of reappraisal of all of his films because I haven't seen most of them in a very long time. And I was like, you know what? Rewatching all of them, he is one of those performers that I know did get the accolades he deserved. But I feel like because of the fact that he passed away so young by comparison to a lot of other people in those conversations, he's kind of not mentioned as much now because... He kind of lost his impact with the you know those generations that were around then. Sure, if you know of his films, people are always going to mention him. But because he had such a diverse set of roles, you know, is he going to be mentioned in the same vein as action stars, as dancing stars, as just generally good award-winning actors? Probably not, because he did a little bit of everything, and he was damn good at all of it, which is quite a rarity. No, that's actually why I think that, like, to me, to some extent, I feel like that almost kind of, he might not necessarily come up a lot, but I feel like no matter what, like, no matter, like, what genre you kind of gravitate to, um, you will like at least one Patrick Spacey movie a lot. If you like action movies, you have Point Break and Roadhouse. If you just like weird shit like I did when I was, like, growing up, Donnie Darko. Like, if you like, like, chick flick type things, you have Dirty Dancing Ghost. So it's like, I feel like, he might not be, like, mentioned in any particular, like, he's not like he's, like, Van Damme or, like, Schwarzenegger or Sloan or anybody where, like, you're talking about action movies, you're going to bring them up. But, like, he's somebody who, like, pretty much whatever genre movie you're talking about, you'll probably get to him eventually, which is, that's, I think that is kind of cool. Yeah. No, a 100%. It is kind of funny, too, because I don't think I would have 
made this connection when I was younger, but from the very start of the movie, they give you a great comparison that I feel like people who were more educated in films than I was at the time picked up on straight away, which is Dalton demonstrates how he deals with people by not dealing with them. He convinces a couple guys to go outside, and then once they're outside and they think they're going to have a fight, he just smiles at them and walks back into the club, and now there's like a dozen very large, very muscular bouncers that they'd have to try and get past if they want to start anything. But also, that immediately made me think of Enter the Dragon, where Bruce Lee you know, disarms that guy that really wants to prove how much of a badass he is, and tells him to get on the boat, and then once he's on the boat, Bruce just laughs and doesn't join him, and then they just leave him. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, it's similar vibes, man, even down to the smirk. No, yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing is like the thing that's interesting about the character of Dalton is it's kind of like the inverse of like every other action hero, where it's like every other action hero, like it's basically like even the, even the ones that are like tongue in cheek, it's always like very like they're trying to prove how tough and badass they are. Whereas like Dalton is the exact opposite, where it's like there's this whole thing where everybody he has this reputation of being such a badass. And he doesn't actually, for like most of the beginning of the movie, like really at least until like the halfway point, like really doesn't do anything. He just kind of exists and like tells you his philosophy. And it's like, I mean, once you actually see him do stuff, you're like, oh, that's why. But like for a big part of the movie, it's like, it's not, it basically is like he's so confident in his skill that he doesn't need to like prove it ever at any point, which is like kind of the opposite of every other action movie, which is kind of why I like it so much. It's also. I don't know if it was deliberate or if it's more of a happy accident, but it also kind of, well, no, it doesn't kind of, it does actually emphasize the true spirit of martial arts in a way that so many actual martial art films never do. And the fact that he doesn't, in any point in the film, nothing he does is to prove himself. Even when he does kind of lose it towards the end, it's not because he has to prove he's a bad guy, it's because he's upset and wants to take it out on someone. And at no point in this film does he ever do anything because of his own ego. He's very much like, I know what I'm capable of. I don't need to prove to you what I'm capable of. And the fact that another thing that I feel makes him stand out, and yes, they do kind of take the piss out of it in the film, but the fact that Patrick Swayze is 5'10", and the character is constantly told, you know, oh, I thought you'd be bigger. And it's like, yeah, but... If he was that big of a monster, he'd have so many problems just trying to, you know, blend into a crowd, just yeah. walk past people. You know, he's not Jack Reacher. But the fact... <laughs> he... But to be fair, to be, you had Tom Cruise playing Jack Reacher, so like, there you go. Yes, I know, <laughs> I know. But the fact that Patrick can blend in, but understands how to take people apart. I mean, he has one of my favorite lines in any action film because... Again, I'm not the the tallest person, and I've, again, forgotten that I got this from him, which is, you know, give me the biggest man on the planet, and if you take out his knees, they all fall the same way. And it, it does. It's true, folks. <laughs> yes, I'm aware of that. I am a tall man, and I don't want you to go after my knees. Please leave my goddamn knees alone. <laughs> I, I, I make no promises. <laughs> I'm very gentle. Please don't hurt me. <laughs> but no, I mean, so we have kind of gone straight into it, but I'm assuming that everybody listening knows what Roadhouse is. 
Um, despite me making a joke about the fact that Family Guy made it a running joke for years, which I I, I enjoyed, but what was I your? I still don't even know. I just know it. I, I the only reason I know that's a thing is a because like I've occasionally seen it on the internet, and also because my tattoo artist, um, who apparently is a fan of Family Guy, whenever I would mention Roadhouse, he'd be like Roadhouse, and he I was, I was like I don't know what the fuck you're doing, and he's just like oh it's Family Guy, and I was like oh okay, but I, I've never seen the actual like whatever episode or whatever the fuck it is. Well, it's 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 multiple episodes. That's oh, why. Okay. So because he did it once, and uh, you know he, I can't remember the exact setup, but basically, someone says something, and Peter Griffin's response is to go down into a karate stance and then do a perfect roundhouse kick, roundhouse kick the character away, and then he just looks at the camera, squints his eyes, and just goes, "Roadhouse," <laughs> and then obviously. Because it's Family Guy, they then explained what Roadhouse was and why he likes it so much. But then it became a running joke. Every time Peter did that in like other episodes, it would you just get the Roadhouse and the and the musical tune with no explanation. So if you didn't see the first time they did it and you were just lost as to what just happened, but they did that so many times for years because people found it so funny. Um, and I and again, I think it speaks to the fact that. Regardless of what you think of Family Guy, if you enjoy it, if you don't, its target audience is basically people that grew up in the 80s. And if you grew up in the 80s, you probably know who Patrick Swayze is and you've probably seen Roadhouse. Oh, probably. Well, yeah, no, like, I, I don't have anything against Family Guy. I just never was like, it's, I don't know. It's like, I know, like, Rob really loves it, but it's like, it's like, it's like um, like, for instance, like, Willie Rob and I were just about the other day where it's like, I grew up on South Park and he did not give the single fuck about South Park. And then, like, he really fucking loves Family Guy, and I don't give a single fuck about Family Guy. I feel like there's, like, very specific audiences for, like, certain shows that either you are a part of or you are not. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, Jade, my wife, is a South Park person, and uh, she's watched it from day one, still watches it to this day, and that one completely passed me by. So we're exactly the same as you and Rob, which is hilarious to hear. So I, th- I think you're right. I will say, though, that upon seeing South Park, I have kind of come around to it, and I've watched a lot of the newer seasons. I will eventually go back and rewatch the older ones, because they're all on streaming, but it is one of those things where, yeah, I think with those sorts of shows, if you're not there to pick up sort of the day one crowd, you, you, you're you not going to get the later stuff. But anyway, and let's not get distracted this early on in an episode. <laughs> so... What was your initial reactions the first time you watched Roadhouse? Um, one thing is like I was like, the thing I was trying to like say before, like um, my whole thing was I, because okay, I was kind of like when I, when I first saw it because I went for like a period where it was like I think every movie geek does I don't know maybe I'm wrong but um where like I had like a really kind of like I don't want to say like snob even though it's probably fair. Um, but, like, I didn't, I was kind of, like, dismissive of, like, certain things, so, like, whereas now I do not have that at all, but, like, so, like, when I, um, first started watching, like, like, when I, again, the reason I saw Roadhouse was because, like, Kevin Smith and Scott Moser at the beginning of the Clerks, uh, Clerks X DVD talking about it, it kind of made, it kind of, it kind of, like, made it okay, I guess, in a weird way, um, so then I ended up watching the movie, and I was, like, I fucking loved it, it was, it's funny, because, like, I discovered it at the same time, I was getting into, like, the widest, weirdest array. Because it was, like, 
when um Netflix like used to be on DVDs, it was kind of like it blew my fucking brain open because um it went from I had to kind of I was kind of at the mercy of whatever they had at my local video store to any fucking movie I wanted to watch. And so I was watching like Roadhouse at the same time I was watching like the early John movies, like the Hong Kong stuff. So it's like in like First Blood and like all the stuff kind of like meshing together. Um, but yeah, like I was like, I, as like I said, to my friend Timmy, like, we, we watched it together and we watched everything together. And like we were both like, I don't know if that movie is good by accident, but it is fucking awesome. Like, and they even like, uh, Kevin Smith and Scott Mosher did like a commentary for it, um, on like the DVD. And, um, one asked the other towards the beginning, they were like, do you think they were trying to like do something like tongue in cheek or they were just trying to make the movie? And I was like, that's kind of my thing too, was I was just like, there is a serious question as to whether or not Rowdy Harrington, I mean, the man's name is Rowdy, but so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt where I think he knew what he was making and he made like a really like, he he wasn't, because it's very much based in like, as much as it's based in like action movies and whatever, it's very much based in Westerns more than anything else. And I definitely think he was doing like kind of a riff where it was just kind of like, it's not like a parody or not even like a satire, but it's just kind of like the most like amusing version of this concept that is inherently insane about the best bouncer in the world. And I really, really liked it. And I've stuck, as I said, I've come back to it constantly, like throughout my life. Like it's been almost 20 years now. I've watched it probably at least once a year, maybe a couple of years, but like I watch it pretty goddamn often. Well, I definitely think that this is a serious movie for a, a number of reasons. First of all, uh, I had my talk with Marshall Teague, and at no point did he ever say that, you know, it was all done tongue-in-cheek. I very much think that they were trying to make something that had its light elements, but they were taking it seriously, you know, regardless of the end result. And also, yes, saying he's the toughest bouncer in the world is a funny sentence, but also... You could argue that realistically, he's just one of the highest rated by word of mouth security contractors that was operating at the time. And it really just depends on how you kind of view the information it's presented to you. Yes, it is all presented to you in a sort of southern down to earth kind of way. But I feel like Dalton, especially, you know, and uh, Wade, when he shows up, Sam Elliott's character they kind of feel like they have come in from a different film, which, again, yes. I think is deliberate. Yeah, no, like, like, especially also, in addition to Sam Elliott's character, also, like, Ben Gazzara's character, I feel like they have a very keen understanding of the movie that they are in. Whether or not that was the movie that, like, was that was being consciously made, I have no idea. But I feel like those guys, like, had a very, like... They knew how like over the top it was, and they were having a good fucking time doing it. Oh, 100%. Ben Gazzara is just nuts. I mean, yes. I mean, I, I love him in anything he's done. He always yep. seems to find a little bit of, like, I don't know how to describe it, but he, he just goes full in with every role I've ever seen him in. And this one, I had genuinely forgotten how over the top he goes with it as the film goes on. I also think as well that I kind of almost wanted more because yes. they imply that he is a hundred times worse than they're actually willing to properly show. Like, 
I, I remember exactly when I rewatched it, the point where my brain snapped from, he's an asshole that I'm looking forward to seeing beaten up, to, oh yeah, he's gonna die. And it's the scene where Dalton walks in and you see the uh, girl in his house and she's covered in bruises and has the blackest of black eyes. And obviously it catches her off guard because she wasn't expecting anyone there. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, he's going to die. And uh, hopefully it's going to be very painful. And it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, that's like, I don't want to skip ahead. But I do think the amount of squibs they use in that scene is the greatest fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it, is, it is funny, too, because uh, Kevin Ty, he... I've seen him as a villain in so many other film and TV projects, and he doesn't exactly come across as the most trustworthy, nice person in this <laughs> film either. And when you have him as your like entry point, I literally remember thinking, oh, I forgot he was in this. Is he the bad guy? Because he's certainly coming across like he's a bit of a duplicitous con man. And then Ben Gazzara shows up as this, you know, suit wearing nice guy and well not a nice guy but he's a well-to-do guy and in the beginning it would be very easy to mistake the seedy club owner as the villain and the local guy that lives in a mansion as the nice guy but i really like the way that they do the whole there's a farmer that lives on the other side of the river and every time he lands his helicopter he deliberately does a flight path that causes the farmer a lot of issues for, well, his property, but also his animals. And it's like, ah, right from the word go, they've coded you to, re you know, not particularly like Brad Wesley. And I like the way they do that. No, totally. I, yeah, no, I definitely think it's funny because like uh, Kevin Ty, the first thing I actually think of him is uh, he's in the My Bloody Valentine remake, like the 3D remake that they did of that. And like, so that's the first thing I think of him. So, like, I always, I guess, think of him in, like, a nice guy way, even though I don't... He definitely has plenty of share of villains. Um, but I do love that, like, um, really, when you break it down, this the, the town is, like, the most weirdly colorful town that, like, you will ever see, where it's, like, the business owners that, like, are, like, the top guys, uh, besides Brad Wesley, obviously, are, like, the local guy who runs the auto place, um, the guy who runs the used car a lot, like Kevin Ty and the Double Deuce. Like, it is like, whatever. And I'm like, I don't necessarily know that any of these men are that successful in their lives, but you are presenting that to me. So, like, I'm willing to buy it, even though they don't seem like they're such silly bastards that I'm like, I don't know that they are necessarily threats to anybody, let alone Ben Wesley. But like, okay, let's go with it. Red Wesley is squeezing them out to make, I guess, a mall. I don't know. Yeah, I think the impression I think they wanted people to have is that obviously it's small town America. And it clearly, you know, the, the Brad's car, uh, Brad himself says at one point, you know, this town was a nothing town until I built it up. And I think they really wanted people to sort of think of it as one of those towns that you see in so many films. They basically are a law unto themselves. Most of their beliefs are about 40 years behind everybody else's. And uh, if you don't get with the program, you have a very, very bad experience of living there, assuming that you stay living there. And I feel like some of it is maybe because they didn't quite have the money, but it is funny that you bring up the town specifically because it is quite amusing that so much of this film takes place in the Double Deuce and the farm 
that whenever they tried to show like the town and like the hardware store, I genuinely hadn't realized until the scene where you actually see it burn down that the hardware store is like 50 yards from the double twos. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, wait, what? And you're sort of looking at it going, why is the hardware store next to the double deuce, which both appear to be in the middle of nowhere? And I'm like, is, <laughs> how, how poor is this town? And then when it, <laughs> and, but then when you, when you see the used car sales lot, suddenly it feels like you're in the middle of a city. And I can't help but feel like that was just the limitations of the budget and where they had to film. But I, I do agree with you. It is a very odd setup that you just kind of have to go with, you know? <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I do think that actually does help in terms of like the vibe. Because like, again, like I, I mean, I don't feel like it's true of just this movie. I feel like if you really break it down, kind of all action movies kind of came from um, like westerns. Because uh, that's my whole thing with like the western dying off. And I was like, well, yes, but it also it's kind of like dinosaurs, where it's like, yeah, the dinosaurs are dead, but like they kind of like evolved into birds, so they still kind of exist. It's kind of the thing with like, westerns; so they kind of evolved into action movies, like. Die Hard is kind of high noon in a lot of ways. So it's like, it just kind of was that evolution. And in the case of Roadhouse, it's very clear. Like the Western thing lands really well because of the stuff they do, like where it's like the fucking double deuce, like the middle of the desert with like Red Wesley's shop across like the way. So it's like just like these two random spots in the middle of like nowhere. It does, in my mind at least, help you help sell the Western vibe that I think they were going for. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think, like you say, there's quite a few films, especially the ones that are set in these sorts of towns where there's a sheriff and a sheriff's department. There's a guy that has a strong moral code and knows the law, but isn't a lawman and a local corrupt official. I mean, they're basically Westerns in every way, shape and form, except the time period. And in the case of something like Roadhouse, it's basically you're swapping the guns for hand-to-hand -hand fights. And I love it. I mean, you know, that the when you first get into the Double Deuce and, you know, Dalton scopes the place out and no one knows who he is. And, you know, he sees how bad the current staff are. And then the massive fight breaks out. I got to say, everything about that feels like a Western, but also it's really well done. I, I also love the fact that Dalton dodges a bottle without even like seeing where it comes from. It's like he's got those hand solo reflexes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, no, like that's the thing is like I do think that's yeah, no, like that's the whole they they do a really good job of establishing like kind of like the lawlessness of it. But I'm like I also think it's funny because as you said, like there's like the juxtaposition of like there being nothing and it being like a bustling city. So you're wondering how much of it is just these people coming out to the middle of nowhere because no one else will have them. Or like if it's just somehow like a really cool bar, <laughs> like it's, it's really kind of impossible as hell for sure. Yeah. No, I, I had that thought. I mean, a bit later on, we get that speech from Dalton about the fact that people won't come to a place that has a reputation for troublemaking, for fights breaking out. So you're only going to attract the class of people that are interested in going to places like that because they want to start stuff like that. And I kind of liked that mindset that you have to kind of do a cold turkey enforcement of this and change how you operate in order to change that. But also, when they do change that, and they have like lines going around the block, 
But when you see the camera pull back, there is no block. This is a building in the middle of nowhere. So <laughs> where are these people coming from? Where are they queuing? And where the fuck did they park? <laughs> I mean, they do establish that there is the parking lot out front because, like, Dalton's car gets fucked up, which I do think is actually that was a really nice touch. Where, like, the beginning of the movie, when he has, like, the really nice Mercedes, which especially, like, in the late 80s was, like, the fucking, like, status symbol of status symbols um, that he gives to the homeless guy um and then gets another piece of shit car basically because he knows people are gonna fuck his car up so he gets like the biggest piece of shit he possibly can throws in some like extra tires and shit because he knows his tires are gonna get slashed but like that is such a good bit but yeah they do establish that there is like a place for them to park out front i mean like whether or not they are parking there is anyone's guess but that's where they could park oh yeah no i i i know i'm just i'm just you know taking the piss <laughs> out of it but um no, I, I love all of that. I mean, I even made it out of the fact that I would love to see somebody, like a modern kid's reaction to this film, because A, completely different sensibilities, but B, there's a TV with an aerial that didn't have reception, and I would <laughs> love to know what they think that massive box is, because I bet you money they won't think it's a television. That's <laughs> probably fair. Same as how, you know, this massive room on a farm that's basically a self-contained home that is bigger than the two-bed flat that I live in for $100 <laughs> a month. Give me a time machine and I'll take it from you, mate. <laughs> I mean, the only thing about that that I buy is it's they don't tell you where it is, like where they actually are with the double deuce, I don't think. Um, so it's like there are, like I know that there's like certain places like where like I live in New York. And, like, granted, Rob lives in, like, the city of New York. I live in the state of New York. But it's an expensive-ass fucking place. Whereas I have friends who have moved to, like, the most random goddamn places, like Indiana and, like, the Carolinas and whatever. And they tell me what the rent is down there or, like, the like the mortgage or whatever. And it is, like, half of what the fuck I pay. So I'm, like, it is entirely possible, depending on where this is, wherever the, the, the whatever fabled land they have come to, where the Bread Wesley is corrupted, it is entirely possible, especially in 80s money, that you could have a place like that, theoretically, for that kind of money, depending on where it is. Yeah, suddenly Brad's rule doesn't seem so bad if you can rent a place for $100. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe corruption's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, the other thing I'd forgotten when I rewatched this is I, I knew from memory how good the, well, how much I remembered enjoying the fights. And I remember Patrick Swayze, these sort of one liners, not one liners in the traditional sense, but just the sort of the, the cutting remarks he makes because he's so much more intelligent than everybody, at least to begin with. It, yeah. it just had me in stitches. But also, I'd genuinely forgotten how good some of the other characters have it in terms of their writing. Like, a line that genuinely had me just laughing so much, especially with, you know, X amount of years after this film released, is when he's talking to the farmer, uh, whose name I, I can't remember, but they're talking anyway. about the fact that he goes to church, and Patrick sort of says to him something to the effect of, are you in the good church's good graces, and did you give him money? And he's like, well, you know, funnily enough, given the church money has that effect of keeping you in their good graces, <laughs> and I died laughing from his <laughs> delivery because yeah man you could pretty much do whatever you like as long as you give them money they'll keep having you coming through those doors 
Oh no, Farmer Emmett has so many good like one-liners in the movie. Like, I do love like when like like Swayze like saves him, Dalton saves him uh, from uh, when the house the house is getting like blown up, or whatever. And um, it just like it's like, oh my god, are you okay? It's like I'll be fine if you get off me. Like yeah. it's like all of his shit is just gold. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's it's funny too because when Dalton goes in the next day. He says to the Steve Austin lookalike that he's fired, and then he gets... <laughs> <laughs> that's actually Terry Funk, so that's actually a really good comparison. I'm glad that you made that comparison, whether you did it or not. That's fantastic. <laughs> Genuinely, I saw him, and I made a literal note that was like, the big bouncer reminds me of Stone Cold, down to the way he walks, and then a second he actually spoke with his accent, I was like, is he a relative or something? I, I should probably look it up. <laughs> My but, genuine guess is that Stone Cold Steve Austin was so influenced by Terry Funk that it probably, like, it just seems like that now. They're, like, so inextricable. But, like, yeah, Terry Funk is, like, the most badass motherfucker. Like, if you listen to, like, seriously, you can do an entire podcast on just Terry Funk stories. They're fantastic. I shall make a note. For anybody listening who is surprised I don't know who that is, I don't know who that is, so I will. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> but... My point was is that Dalton then delivers his law and he gives them the three rules. And I found that really interesting because his big like his big ideas is to basically just have some professionalism. And it's all stuff that you'd like to think people would just do as default. And the funny thing was, is I was sat there and I was going, you'd like to think that. But I genuinely think that there are people working in industries today that don't know these three fucking rules and could learn a lot by watching this film i was just sat there like it kind of reminds me of the conversation around uh star trek the next generation where i see so many people who watch it now or used to watch it and have now started rewatching it and have said you know the next generation gave me unfair expectations on the levels of professionalism that i could expect in the workplace and i i have to disagree it's not that they gave you unfair expectations, it's that they gave you what the expectation should be, <laughs> yeah, exactly. not what people actually have. And the, and this film is exactly the same. It's like, people don't come with that level of professionalism as default. It has to be trained and it has to be taught. The flaw has always been that companies don't like spending the money to train people and to give them those resources to actually have that kind of environment. And I find it so funny, the last place I expected to be having this conversation was talking about Roadhouse. What is something more fucked up, though? Uh, after, because of the fucking country I live in, um, after the whole various um, things that have happened between police and citizens in recent years... I have read that um, they have started showing the scene where Dalton lays out like the whole like be nice until it's time to not be nice. Um, I have read they've been, they've started showing that to police officers. I'm just like, if you need to be told this <laughs> as a cop, I am genuinely frightened that you are a cop. <laughs> like, what the fuck? I. <sighs> I mean, that kind of depresses me, but it sadly it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I genuinely, as a, as a fool, as a, as a British fool, assumed that <laughs> your cops had to have the same years of training that ours do 
and pretty much every other law enforcement uh, agency in Europe and several parts in the world do. And then I found out it's something ridiculous like 27 weeks. And I'm like, huh, that might explain a lot. <laughs> yes, it would. It would explain a lot. And then, yeah, God bless America, I said sarcastically. Anyway, before we, like, you know, ignite the internet on fire when people <laughs> hear this, let's swiftly move on. <laughs> what I also like is, apparently my notes are incomplete here, but regardless, I remember the sequence. He gives that big speech about professionalism, and then you see it in action in the next sequence. And what I really like is, the bouncers have to put up with assholes, just like anyone who's ever worked in customer service yep. environments. And it doesn't really matter what field of industry you're in. Everybody has had that experience where the other person is not treating you the way that they should because insert reason here. It could be any number of things, but you cannot lose your cool because you have to be the bigger person. And it's frustrating and annoying. But I really like the fact that when it all goes south, one of the things that Dalton does that immediately gets the respect of all the other bouncers is instead of just sitting in the background going, yeah, man, you got this. And when it all goes wrong, I'll blame you. He immediately moves in and takes on the guy with a knife himself and smashes his head through a table, which, you know, is like, is not something you could do in the actual workplace. But by <laughs> the, the person that you now work for coming in and demonstrating that he isn't just telling you to do this stuff so that he can't, Dalton demonstrates, I can and will do this stuff and I have your back. From that point on, everyone that was working stopped arguing with him and did as they were told and knew that they could trust him. And it's such a efficient way of dealing with that. I also have to give a shout out to the choreographer and the stunt coordinator because the way in which they do that sequence and they take the knife and he does something that so many action films do wrong, which is that he takes the knife out of the equation and holds on to it. And the hand that is holding the knife as he smashes his head through the table so he can't then get stabbed. In so many films, the knife just magically disappears and the bad guy forgets he has it. But in this one, he's like, nope, I'm going to do a wrist lock. I have this. Down you go. I'm going to keep the knife. Thank you very much. Perfect execution. 10 out of 10. I would, would recommend. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, like, I do think... Um... It's funny that, like, because you put the, the, the staff, I was like, to be fair, they don't really ditch, like, most of the staff kind of gets with the program pretty quickly, it seems like. Like, the only ones they actually have to, like, actively, like, get rid of are the <laughs> the girl who's selling drugs uh, on the floor, um, the one really horny bouncer, and um, uh, Terry Funk, and um, John Doe from X, uh, punk band X, uh, the original bartender. But I was like, he still keeps like a huge chunk of the staff because like like they even established like really early on. I remember like that's the whole thing is like, there's that whole point in the movie when um like the like they established that he and Jeff ha Jeff Healy somehow like are old buddies that have like <laughs> somehow have had like some sort of travel together on the roads of bars, I guess, where Jeff Healy has been in like playing his blind blues in bars that Dalton has worked in before, to the extent they have very good rapport. But there's that whole bit when he's just like, Dalton is like done whatever. And then it's like, his name is Dalton. And it's the zoom on, <laughs> on him. And I'm just like, it is funny how quickly they establish. I guess it is kind of like the, also like the Snake Plissken thing, where it's like, they're establishing the legend of the guy, like while you're watching it, which actually they, they help sell it as you're watching it. 
So, like, you don't ever question, like, the things of, like, he's a smaller guy or, like, whatever. Like, it's all very... It's presented to you in such a way that you can't... You, you never doubt it for a second. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. It's also as good a time as any to sort of mention something that I think most uh, fight people already know. Fight people. Action fans. <laughs> what the fuck is a fight person? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what's going on with my brain tonight? Yeah, it's also as good a time as any to mention uh, something that I'm ma- imagining most action fans probably already know because you likely listen to The Art of Action and a bunch of other podcasts that talk about these films. But Benny Urquidez, who needs, needs no introduction, I mean, films that feature him are definitely in the cards to talk about in the future. But he worked behind the scenes on this film. He was the trainer for well for Patrick Swayze but he was also he trained some of the other folks as well but he was also kind of went uncredited for a lot of the stuff that he did but in the actual credits he's he's actually credited as a role that I it's so 80s he wasn't the the choreographer he was the martial arts technician advisor which (laughs) is just the most 80s way of no 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 they're real fights they're real fights but then even funnier than that Underneath him, William M. Fannin Jr. was the Tai Chi technical advisor. <laughs> and I'm just like, hang on. He got Benny in to do basically most of the fights and to work on the training and the technique. And then you got somebody else in just for Tai Chi. I am genuinely <laughs> amazed at the... Like, I've never seen another film do that. And also, Charlie... Kearney, I'm going to go with, uh, was credited as a second unit director. Steve Perry was also credited for some reason, but he's the unit production manager. I don't know if there was some crossover, but I know from talking to Marshall that Charlie was the stunt coordinator, the second unit director. So it was it was Charlie and Benny that basically put all this stuff together between them. And I, I got to say, like, it's there isn't a bad fight or stunt effect in the entire film. Uh, that was actually one of the things that really stood out to me rewatching it is I remembered how good the fights were, but the actual stunt work, whether it be going through a table, going over the bar, going through doors and glass, or, you know, uh, being next to an explosion that goes off and being really close to it, or being near a monster truck that is flattening cars <laughs> and they're literally like an inch away from its tires. I was genuinely surprised and kind of impressed that kind of how daredevil these stunts are you know yeah no i mean i definitely it's funny because like um i am like i i think i think you're like i'm an action fan like i'm less of an action nerd than like many of us i don't even think about like in those terms most of the time um but yeah when you say it and i'm thinking about it like it is actually really impressive i never really thought about it before because but even like like the fights is done it's kind of almost like i took it for granted um, but yeah, no, like everything in the movie, it definitely does. It does feel real and grounded. Like nothing really, like all the characters are kind of over the top and stuff, but like, and situations obviously, but like really nothing feels unrealistic in terms of like the action at all. No, no. I mean, that's why when we were, I was saying about the fact that you could argue that this is a more mature film, that's sort of the tone that I feel like they were going for. Yes, it's still a little bit campy and a little bit OTT. And like you say, everything is heightened, but it's a much more lower stakes 
storyline that I'm not going to say people could find themselves in because I don't think they could, but it it feels more <laughs> believable than Rambo, for example. And um, you've got the best bouncer in the world, as we've previously established, but all it takes <laughs> to cause him issue is for there to be three people to fight. And if one grabs him from behind and the others start wailing on him, <laughs> he's screwed. And the thing is, that's pretty accurate. I mean, no, I yeah, actually... I was going to say, like, I, yeah, I've been in fights. So that's 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 real. Like it's like it's like in movies. I always think it's funny. Like when it's always like there's a guy, there's like there's like five guys lined up, and like he starts fighting one guy, and they all just patiently wait <laughs> for him to dispatch that guy before they come back in. And I'm just like, in a real fight, and you're against three people, you are fucked. <laughs> like, like there is not a good the way for this to end for you unless you are a truly spectacular fighter. Yeah, yeah, you've either got to be, you know, the second coming of the greatest fighter who ever lived, or you've got to be savage as all hell, and every move you do needs to break something, which is not as plausible as people might think it is. <laughs> no, it is not. But uh, I, I really like that aspect of it. Every fight in this film i didn't get bored by because it felt like every maneuver and every punch could be the one that ended it and it's also just nice to see that some actors of this genre especially in the 80s in their prime probably wouldn't have been on board for starring in a film where a third of all of their fight scenes are going to end with them bloodied bruised potentially stabbed and looking like they've just been hit by a truck. You know, I mean, some of yeah. the, the biggest stars of that time would be in, like you said, hundreds of fights in their film. And at the very end, if you were lucky, there was a patch of dirt on their face. And that was as most as they were going to suffer in terms of damage. That was actually my favorite thing. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the John Cena movie, The Marine. Oh, yes, um, I have. <laughs> like my favorite thing in that movie is um when he's in the um like the, the gas station that utterly just explodes in the most massive spectacular explosion you've ever seen he's in the middle of this explosion and all that happens is he's a little dirty and he has to take his shirt off <laughs> and i'm just like yeah this is the greatest fucking thing ever but like it is literally it's like i do think the thing that's uh actually really cool about dalton is um they do that they, they make him feel like a real dude like there's a whole like even though he like he's tough but he's tough in a way that feels legit like there's that whole thing where like after he ends up like getting like, the knife wound and he goes to the hospital um and she's like stapling it closed before she starts doing it he says like pain don't hurt um which is like such a badass line sure but then like the first staple you see him react to it and it's like, clearly pain does hurt <laughs> So it was just like I do like that he did that because that's the thing is like you don't you don't get that from most action movies like it was like I mean in some cases it made sense because like Schwarzenegger was always kind of like playing a superhero even though he wasn't playing a superhero like even when yeah. he was playing the Terminator like that made sense but even when he wasn't playing the Terminator like he was just playing a dude he was still somehow super heroic uh, which I never questioned when I was a kid um but like it is it does add like weight to the dalton thing where it's like he feels like a real dude like doing this like he doesn't feel like it, despite everything else being so over the top he feels like it, it it's, it's what makes it feel like it could really happen is that he's like actually 
like walking away with injuries and like he has a giant chart of all of, like he has his medical chart of all his injuries that he carries around from place to place with him to save time like it's all these little things that are like kind of realistic but they're also kind of ridiculous and it like it just it grounds it in a way that's really cool i think honestly like it it it, it, killed, it, it balances out the over-the-top nature of the movie in a lot of ways yeah no it does i i completely agree i mean I love the the sequences where Dalton is hasn't got a shirt on because one of the things that they don't shy away from is he is scarred and he is injured. Like yes, he's in good shape and yes, he's a tough guy, but three or four times throughout the movie they make a point of drawing attention to the fact that he is going to suffer when the benefits of his youth wears off. And he yeah. even says like, "Yeah, I know that." Uh, but this job pays really well or something to that effect. <laughs> and the fact that, you know, it's just, it's kind of one of the most realistic parts of the film. He's got a very, very smart brain. He could be doing so many other things, but this is what he's good at. And you mentioned one of my favorite moments where he says, you know, pain don't hurt unless you let it. And I think this is how I read the scene and this is how I read his character because this is something that my dad was really good at. And I remember specifically, he said this to me when we watched Roadhouse the first time. At the time, there was a big thing about pain is only an illusion of the mind. And if you're a Zen master, for example, I'm just pulling that as an example. I'm not saying Dalton is a Zen master. But <laughs> there are people in the world who can allegedly essentially just turn off their pain receptors. They still feel it. It's still happening as a, as an actual nervous system response. They're just ignoring it and pushing it out of their mind, therefore refusing to feel it. And the way Dalton reacts when someone slices him with a knife or punches him in the face, he does react for like a split second, like you said, because it does still hurt. There's no way to just, you know, turn it off. But then he just sort of breathes and it's like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, that hurts, but it's all good. I'm in my happy place. That's how I read all of his scenes when that sort of stuff happens, is that he's using the fact that he's a philosopher, in inverted commas, and has all this knowledge of how to do these sort of techniques in his head to essentially push him to do more than he should be able to. Because realistically, if you get sta if you get sliced with a knife, you're not going to turn around and kick someone in the head. You're going to fall over screaming. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, to be fair, though, like, I mean, I've been in my sheriff, like, fights, and it's just, like, if you are in a situation where you kind of have to, you have no other choice but just kind of, like, put it out of your head and, like, try to, like, continue going, like, just to go on, like, I, it's not that far out of the realm of possibility, but, like, it definitely, like, if you cut yourself so deep that you need stitches... Or somebody cuts you so deep you need stitches. And, like, you're applying them yourself without any noise. <laughs> like, like, I've had my share of, like, stitches. Like, that is, like... That's probably the most badass thing about fucking Dalton. Is, like, he's yeah, just, yeah. like... Totally self-contained <laughs> as, like, a pain machine. Both to give and receive. I agree. The fact that he doesn't take pain... And can stitch himself back up and has the knowledge to do that. Um, 
is kind of impressive. I mean, don't get me wrong. Realistically, like you say, if it was that deep that it was bleeding to the point that he needed stitches, he wouldn't be able to do it himself. But he could do the superficial stuff. So still, I'm, I'm kind of giving him points there. Um, as I've said in, uh, I think it was in the Desperado episode. Yeah, it was the Desperado episode. I worked in the surgical department. I know how stitching people back together works, even though I am not a surgeon. But seeing movie versions of how it works is always interesting. And I, I don't judge it because at the end of the day, it's, it's entertainment. It, you know, no one wants to be bored with the realities of how this stuff really works. And also, this is a film in the 80s. A staple gun works just as well as actual surgeons doing the job. I ain't got a problem with that. Oh, God, that would suck so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so we also get his uh, first real introduction, uh, his first real confrontation with Brad when he's driving all over the road like a maniac. And I, I gotta be honest... I love that so much. So <laughs> much. I love it so much. <laughs> it's such a an asshole thing to do. Like, he essentially owns the road and everyone else will get out of his way. And I even made a note that, like, I don't even think you could make that scene work today because, like, a dash cam would kind of solve that for you because you'd just send it in to somebody that's you know, well, would... yes and no, but the other thing is that they they establish in the movie like there's a whole point when like um that the 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 red store gets blown up and he's like, can you prove he started the fire? Like to prove it to who? It's like he owns the the police department, like he owns the fire yeah. department. Like what what are we gonna do? So it's like even if you have a dash cam, like who are you gonna show? Like who's gonna give a fuck? Well, exactly, that's what I was gonna say. But at that point in the film. I didn't know that. <laughs> so okay. when I made that note, I didn't know that he owned the police. But yes, we also then get uh, Jimmy's first introduction, which is Marshall Teague's character. And uh, they kind of establish straight away that he's a badass that everybody else seems to know to just avoid like the plague. And um, it then, you know, you get Patrick Swayze doing Carter. And I wasn't sure if it was Tai Chi or if it was uh, some other form. But the fact that there is a Tai Chi person credited, I'm going to assume it's Tai Chi. Yeah, and I've, yeah. also, I've also made a note that considering Patrick wasn't a martial artist, he is potentially the best performer of Carter I've ever seen on film that isn't like a legitimate martial artist. And I know it's because he's a dancer and he's in great shape. But the fact that there are... People that get cast today in very martial art heavy roles that can't even like convincingly do basic white belt level forms on screen irritates me immensely, especially going back to like the 80s and you got Patrick Swayze doing it perfectly, you know? No, yeah. I mean, I do think, yeah, like I think that I don't know. I, I don't know about the martial arts aspect of it, but I do know that like. Patrick Swayze definitely threw himself into shit because I know that that was the whole reason that there's that shot in Point Break where they literally show him fall out of a fucking airplane is because, like, he decided just to become a really good fucking skydiver so they could get that kind of shot. So it's like, it would not surprise me to find out if he was, like, learning Tai Chi or learning martial arts just to do that as, like, realistically as he possibly could. Um, because... I can answer that for you if you'd okay. like me to. Go ahead. So he wasn't. Uh, I mean, I believe he may have decided to continue doing it afterwards. But essentially, Benny Arquidez was Patrick Swayze's trainer. And 
Patrick was struggling to do the martial arts sequences and the choreography badly. And <laughs> it got it got to the point where Benny was actually panicking that Patrick wouldn't be able to perform what they'd choreographed. And it was actually getting to the stage where they were trying to decide, do we need to get a double or do we need to re redo everything? Because Patrick just couldn't get the rhythm. And he couldn't remember the choreography, despite the fact he had the physical ability to do so. Yeah. Benny said this on the Art of Action episode with Scott Adkins, and Marshall actually said this to me, like, third-hand, that he witnessed this sort of transformation happen. But apparently Benny realized that the problem wasn't Patrick. The problem was he was used to training people that were already kind of martial artists and people that already knew what they were doing. Patrick was trained as a dancer. And so essentially what Benny did is he played music and taught him the choreography to music like it was a dance. And Patrick picked it up on the first go. And once they realized that if he remembered it as a dance routine, which is basically what choreography is, like it's the yes. it's it's always what it gets compared to, he had no problems and learned it all pretty much like instantly. But it took that that moment of changing how most people would teach you and going, this won't work for you. I need to, Benny had to change how he trained him, how he taught him, and more importantly, how he trained everybody else so that it would still all come together and work. And we've both already said how good the fights are. So clearly it worked, but yeah. that, you know, the fact that you just said that you wouldn't be surprised if Patrick was a, you know, training in martial arts to go for realism just goes to show how good he was because no he wasn't but he looks like he did yeah no he definitely i i would have totally bought it because like i do think i think it's funny is like um like especially like the fight with um with teague like the one like the, the climactic one between two of them like that's really like it feels like a real fight in a lot of ways like it's like i definitely never questioned it for even a second because it also it's like it's one of the fights where it's not like it's pretty much like all hand to hand except for like obviously <laughs> the gun part but um but like it's not something like the, the end of the movie where it's a kind of like him kind of going like full predator mode and like stalking and killing it's just like man to man like whatever and like he feels like a legit like he stands up to <laughs> Teague who used to fuck guys like him in prison and it's oh like, that line it, is it, hilarious it's so good dude it's so good <laughs> I had totally forgotten that line was coming, and I was just like, what did you just say? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the best part is not only that he, like, thought it, he said it aloud. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that, like, even if you thought that, that you it's, that you should have felt it was badass enough to say aloud, but I'm so glad you did, <laughs> Jimmy. I'm so glad you did. Yeah, I mean, not to not to jump ahead, but that that fight genuinely is one of my favorite fights ever filmed, and I I had forgotten how much I enjoyed it. And knowing a bit more about the behind the scenes stuff just makes me appreciate it more because I didn't know, for example, um, again, sorry to people that listened to the to the Marshall Teague episode um, because I'm kind of repeating some stuff, but it's relevant because of what we're talking about, but. I didn't know that Marshall was like a training partner of Benny's and Chuck Norris. And when you hear what he kind of was used to doing with Benny, I can totally picture that this entire scene was basically choreographed with Marshall and Benny going at it. Because bearing in mind that Benny Arquidez was 
world champion kickboxer, hardly ever lost one of the most deadliest kicks on the planet, even many years after he retired. And Marshall could keep up with him. And, you know, that was the guy that Benny did a lot of his stuff with. It makes me wonder what the, uh, essentially the previs would look like if we could, if someone had filmed their version of the fight scene. I bet that looks like hilariously OTT with all of the crazy stuff they were doing. But the fact that they then were able to translate that into Patrick Swayze going at it with Marshall, you had one guy that is essentially trying to get everything done with raw power in Jimmy, and then you've got Dalton flowing around him effortlessly. And it, and considering how many years later, comparatively, he would come, it really reminds me, Patrick Swayze's movements really remind me of how Jet Li would do a lot of his fights when he plays a lead hero character as opposed to a lead uh, villain character. He does have that ability to morph how he fights depending on whether or not his personality is supposed to be a, a a likable character or a dislikable character and i feel like they got that across perfectly in the language of the fight here even though obviously it ends with dalton ripping his fucking throat out which is awesome <laughs> and violent but <laughs> up until that point <laughs> <laughs> it's like what's well, funny i can now not watch it without ever like i don't know if you've seen the gruber or not um but i now can't watch it after now having seen the gruber Without thinking of that, when he's just like <laughs> MacGruber's desire to like rip, like ripping throats, <laughs> like it's like it's just like all I can think of it now is watching like whatever he does that is like because presumably I feel like the implication is he did the same thing uh before this like with uh, yeah. whoever it was that like uh that Sam Elliott's character was telling him like he's like where it's like that woman never told you she was married. Like the implication was that he had did the, done this before, and he had tried he had tried so hard to not rip any more throats, but in the end, just he just can't help himself. He's got he's got to tear out that throat. He just has to. That's just who he is as a man. <laughs> yeah, no the 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 implication that I always got was that Sa uh, Sam Elliott's character is basically the person that trains Dalton. Like that's that's you know we all we all kind of got that. He was basically the closest thing he had to kind of a a fatherly figure and he obviously was the one that taught him how to do all these cool fight moves how to live his life with the philosophy and presumably is also the person that taught him how to kill and rip throats and the fact that they they slowly give you this backstory which i liked because i again had forgotten that it's not all just one like exposition dump you get it in piecemeal throughout the film pretty much from the word go too because they start whispering about the fact that dalton killed a guy in the double deuce like before he even like gets there and announces himself and when you do finally get that explanation from sam elliott sort of saying you know you did that in self-defense because the other guy had a gun and he was gonna kill you like what was you gonna do instead and that's what it was ruled as like the from the way that he kind of hints at it is like that's that's not my opinion that's what the ruling was in court so Yes, he did rip out somebody else's throat, but it was very much a case of he was not in the wrong, in inverted commas, but he was put into a situation where it was, someone was going to die, which, who was it going to be? And you kind of end up in the same scenario with Jimmy, except obviously the slight difference this time is that Patrick went looking for the fight, or Dalton went looking for the fight, as opposed to being ambushed. Yeah, I mean, to be, to be fair, I mean, he he didn't, it's not like he like 
was like searching out Jimmy to like it's like like Jimmy did something really fucking like he did something horrible and then like Dalton's natural instinct throughout a lot of the movie is something that's really horrible it's like vengeance like vengeance is priceless and I must mete out vengeance to these men like the fucking sword of fucking Damocles like I am the fucking I am Mr. like I am Batman and like it's like so it's like I to be fair I mean yes he does go like after like Jimmy but like it's not like he just like like fucking like paddled across the fucking water to go find him like it was just like Jimmy was there laughing maniacally at his uh, handiwork, and Dalton just made him fucking pay for it. Do you know what makes me laugh about all of those scenes where people are, people's homes are, and workplaces are blowing up, and then, yeah, the last time it happens is Jimmy's on a motorbike running away. My first thought is, how the fuck did he sneak in in the first place? That, mo- <laughs> that, that motorbike is the loudest thing there, and there's a building on fire next to you, and how did he get there in the first place to plant the goddamn bomb? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he 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 came in under the cover of uh, Brad Wellesley's uh, helicopter. That's what I. That's what he did. That's what he did. Ah, okay. I I honestly thought you were going to say he came in under the cover of uh, uh oh, I've forgotten the bloody name. Hang on. I want this. I want this joke to land. <laughs> Yeah, I thought you were going to say that he came in under the cover of Patrick Swayze and Kelly Lynch having sex in the bedroom. That's why nobody heard him. <laughs> I mean, he could have. You can't. It was very athletic sex. And maybe maybe she, maybe they're very loud people. Who can say? Who knows for sure? Exactly. Exactly. But I will say, since we started talking about uh, Jimmy, I do like the way he is utilized throughout the film. The art of being the the, the, the right hand henchman is kind of been lost as time has gone on, in my opinion. But this film does it right. Like whenever uh Brad wants to be an asshole, especially to his own men, that's the bit that always just made me sort of go, Why? Like the amount of beatings he gives them with Jimmy stood right there to make sure that none of them are stupid enough to fight back, and then has the nerve to call them weak, pathetic men. But he's only doing it because he knows he's got the the hardest man of a lot of them stood right next to him, just in case any of them fight back. And it it boils my blood in like the best way, so that I hate these two. And then you get it, you know, all of the 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 sort of mini confrontations that happen in the double deuce, where Jimmy is constantly trying to goad Dalton into doing something, but he never bites, and then eventually. We get the brilliant sequence where he has the pool cue and he pretty much takes apart the bouncers by showing off that he can swing a pool cue around like a bow staff. And that's also when we get Sam Elliott. And I love the way that they they kind of tell you through the choreography that Sam Elliott's Wade Garrett, if he was a few years younger, probably would have kicked Jimmy's ass. But age is caught up with him and he walks with a limp. And unfortunately, he ain't able to keep up with Jimmy, who is really good. And uh, the, they kind of immediately right there show you that Jimmy is a threat because the guy that Dalton has said is the best couldn't just put him down as everybody kind of expected him to. And it, it kind of makes you go, this guy's an asshole, but I've just seen him do some really cool martial arts. 
and he kind of beat Wade. So, oh, it's going to be interesting when they go at it, isn't it? And I, I love that sort of build up, you know? No, yeah. Although I will say, because you mentioned it before, um, they never really completely established. They like they make like they have the whole thing of like um, Wade's getting old, and I was just like. But he doesn't seem that old. Like, he seems, like, at most, like, 10 years older than Swayze. Like, it's just, like... Oh, yeah. So, I mean, granted, Sam Elliott has basically been old my entire life. But, like, he doesn't necessarily seem more old in Roadhouse than he no. looks in, like, Big Lebowski or, like, whatever, something like that. So it's, like, because he just kind of... It's, like, he got to a certain age and just stayed there. Like, it's, like, even if you look at him now, like, he doesn't look, like, that much substantially older than he did in, like, Big, Le- Big Lebowski. So it's, like, he got to, like, it's, like, he aged too quickly and then just stopped. <laughs> just like So it's, like, I don't know exactly how old, like, Wade is supposed to be, but he's, like, still, like, apparently, like, a virile man. Like, there's a lot going on with him. Uh, he's trying to steal Kelly Lynch. Like there's a there's a lot going on with Wade that does not seem like he is that really that old. <laughs> like even though they keep saying that he's like so aged. I I think oh, I was trying to see if I could just find it quickly, but annoyingly I can't. But I thought the same thing, and I looked it up, and I found it then, no problem. But of course, when I want to double check, I can't find it. But basically, <laughs> somewhere I found that uh, when they made this film, Patrick Swayze was thirty six, and uh, Sam was like. 42 i think or 44 but yeah they're not, they're, they're not the difference in age <laughs> no but the character was supposed to be like way older um, oh okay you know he was supposed to be like dad age to uh patrick swayze and you know that's why he's got gray hair and he moves a bit rough shall we say but the problem is is as, as so many other people have kind of commented on twitter when roadhouse kind of got talked about Sam Elliott just is too damn charming and good looking to believably make you look at him and go, oh yeah, that's an old man. He, like you said, he has one of those faces that just refuses to age. He has looked that age, I swear, his whole life. <laughs> no, totally. I, like, he very well could have come out of the womb with that mustache for all I know. Like, I have no fucking clue. But like, I I remember um, from like a really young age, I can't remember what movie I saw, but I saw him in a movie when I was like a child um like some like comedy and like he's looked the same every fucking minute i've seen him in a goddamn movie ever since like my entire life like i feel like i am going to die and sam Elliott is going to live on at the exact age that he is now he's like a fucking vampire so i just noticed something whilst i was looking for the answer to the to the ages question that i thought you know maybe that'll be in the trivia but I have to share this now because A, this is not something that Marshall said in his episode, and now I'm definitely going to ask him about it when he comes back. According to the trivia, the fight between uh, Marshall and Patrick, the reason why we both think it looks so goddamn realistic is because it kind of was. And uh, they didn't like each other, apparently, but then they did. And because they did, and because they trusted each other, they were like, let's just throw real punches and kicks. And Apparently, it ended with Swayze being covered in bruises, two broken ribs, and a busted knee. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, uh, I guess pain don't hurt. <laughs> well, that's like, I mean, that's the whole story about, like, um, I think it was Rocky Four, 
when like Stallone was like yeah. to Dolph Lundgren, like let's just let's not fake the punches, like let's just like nothing to the face, but everything else, let's let's do it for real. Ended up with, like a fucking large tart. I'm like, yeah, fuck around and find out, find out, dude. <laughs> like, that's the way the shit works. Yeah, apparently Patrick needed 2.5 ounces of fluid drained from his left knee afterwards. It's actually not surprising because I know that happened with um Dirty Dancing too. I want to say like, he had like some sort of thing where he like slipped and fucked his knee up and they had to like take liquid out of it i'm like jesus christ patrick your 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 fucking knees are worse than mine and we have the same goddamn name what the fuck is going on yeah man i mean that just reading that has just like completely changed that scene for me because i i we we both were like oh yeah it's 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 really cool how realistic it looks like oh yeah there's a reason for that because it basically fucking was <laughs> <laughs> And to note, I gotta say, Teague has a fucking jawline that can fucking cut glass. Like, God bless him. And he looks exactly, when he's playing Jimmy, he looks exactly like when Superman came back, like after the whole Death Superman thing with the mullet, looks exactly like him. Exactly. Yeah, so like, you're right. That's a missed opportunity in casting. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, that, 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 uh, that's made me really sad now because Teague has had the right build the right frame oh he, he yeah he could have he, he would have been an interesting superman in some production somewhere for sure that would have been cool like if you had done like let's say like the um like the albert pune captain america if you did like an albert pune superman movie and you didn't use teague i would have been really pissed off oh uh, oh uh, you're making me want things that don't exist don't do this to me <laughs> i'm sorry Speaking of wanting things that don't exist, I tell you who else is in this film that kind of came out of nowhere that I was like, wait, he is? Is Keith David as just yes. a random bartender? And I'm like, <laughs> no, no, get him out from behind that bar and make him one of the bouncers. Have you yeah. not seen how good <laughs> of an action guy Keith David is? Why? Why did you do that to me, Phil? I was so excited when he showed up and then he does nothing. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, though, I do think that, like, Keith David has always been, like, it's, they, they, get, they give him a lot of parts where he's, like, a big, like, rough, tough son of a bitch. But, like, I do think he's equally, he's such a good actor that, like, you could put him in parts where he is not doing any action at all. And there's still a gravitas that he, like, brings to it. That's why I think that he kind of, he still gets work. Is because yeah. like it is a bummer that he doesn't get to be a badass in this. But I was like, I there's tons of things. Like, even like he did an episode of Psych where he was like Gus's dad, and I'm just like it was like in the last like ten years, and it's just it's it's Keith David has the career longevity he does. I feel like because he's just such a good actor that has happened to be burly, viable badass. That like, but he's in his heart is like a Shakespearean fucking actor. So it's like, I would have liked to have seen him do some, like, kick-ass fights in this movie. But, like, as it is, I'm just happy to see Keith David when he shows up. I completely agree. I mean, Keith David is one of those actors, whether it's his voice or his presence. Like, he's in so many things that people don't probably realize that they've seen way more of his stuff than you, than they realize. And I do always find it interesting... Like when you go back and you watch an older film and then he has just a random role that usually like this one isn't really anything important, but he's just there in the background. Like, I'm here if you need me, brother. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's just so funny to me. 
And the other thing I've just noticed uh, is apparently if I read my own goddamn notes, I could tell you without even Googling that Sam was 44 to Patrick's 36. So there you go. I, I actually noted it, but I didn't read that far <laughs> down. <laughs> Don't beat yourself up. It'll be okay, buddy. It'll be okay. It's okay. There's no pain in this dojo. Oh, no, that's a different film. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, but but speaking of the fights, since we've been talking about them, I got to say that the the sequence where they tried to, the bad guys tried to, like, muscle their way into the club after all of the bouncers have kind of come together under Dalton's lead, and he's got the knife on the end of his boot. I love how, A, they all work to push them out, but B, I love the fact that all of the, all of the bouncers, even some of the ones that I couldn't tell you their names, I don't even know if they get names, but the, the way that they all come together to have this big, essentially four on four fight sequence, it feels so good and I never lose what's happening, which there are films today that have less people in it and I genuinely don't have a goddamn clue what's going on. And yet this was a film at night but I still could follow everything with eight people all going at it. I thought it was great. And then later on, you get the one where Sam Elliott turns up and Patrick is getting beaten up, which is the one we were talking about earlier. And then Sam Elliott gets to show off what he can do with his fists. And then they work together. And again, every time this sort of plays out with these fights, it's like, it just reminds me that there is a reason why these films were so damn popular. and. I'm not trying to be like negative to modern movies because I, I, you know, a lot of the ones I've covered recently have been from 2022. There's still good stuff out there, but it does feel like something has been lost as the years have gone on with the way in which these things were shot and the way in which they were choreographed so that you could actually see clearly what's going on without it being really confusing or distorted. And also, since we're talking about fake casting, I would just like it known Sam Elliott would have made a great whistler in Blade. Yes, you would. No, you're not wrong. I mean, the only thing that I was going to say to you, like you, you said, is um, I do think part of it is like, <laughs> like I know Rob has said to like, I, mean, I don't know if we've ever gotten on mic, but like we've definitely talked about it a lot. Like his hatred for like Paul Greengrass's direction of Bourne films. Oh, um, he said it in this show too. Don't worry. So like, I definitely think that like, it's not just him it was also like it was a thing i remember people um, complaining when like batman begins came out like the way the the fights were shot and stuff there too so i think it's just like kind of like the way that kind of things went where it's like it used to be much more the way you you direct action was is very different than it was now i feel like it was it used to be much more stagey and then i feel like at a certain point they kind of like got the idea that and I don't necessarily think it's completely untrue, but um, if you shoot something more like down and dirty, it makes it feel more real. And so we kind of gravitated towards that. And I do feel like there should be kind of more of a happy medium. And I do feel like there is to some extent, like, because like, for instance, like, as like we mentioned, like the Raid movies, like those are really well shot, well directed, like action set pieces. Um but there obviously are many cases where that isn't the case. But I feel like, yeah, I feel like there there should like there definitely is room for like a happy medium. But I definitely don't think that you're wrong that like things have changed substantially. Like in even like like I would say like within like ten or fifteen years after the movie came out, things were totally different. Yeah, 
yeah, and I mean, I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I've said this before, that, like, when I rewatched the Bourne films, I actually didn't find the first two particularly difficult to follow, and this is something that I think me and Matt have talked about, where the style, the people that created the styles, i.e. in this case we're talking about Shaky Cam, they did it well. They did it right. The problem is, is that other people then saw what they did and went, ah, so all you do is shake the camera around a bunch and people enjoy it. And then about a <laughs> hundred films all tried mimicking it without really understanding that there was so much more work going into that than they realized or cared, however you want to look at it. And, you know, you ended up with a bunch of imitators that couldn't match the quality of the original, but also you had a bunch of executives that realized that they could use this to help or hide, again, however you want to look at it, actors who perhaps are not as capable as they would like the character to be. And, you know, if you want to see Liam Neeson climb a fence in 50 cuts or less, then Taken 3 is the film for you. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, the only thing is I will say is it's a case with, I feel like there's some, this is a case with kind of with just filmmaking in general is that like, there are some like directors who are like craftsmen and like, they know what they're doing in terms of like, cause it's not even just action. Like, um, like Rob and I have talked about like on Chainsaws and Claws. Like, um, there was like, when Carpenter did Halloween, there was like, it was John Carpenter is a fucking craftsman. Like he, created this thing and then everybody was like oh cool we'll do that too and the problem is that not everyone it's because he made it look easy and they did it for so little money that everyone just assumed that they could and you couldn't it's like you had to have that level of skill to make it work and like that's why you have God knows how many bad fucking slasher movies that are ripping off Halloween that didn't know how to like how to do any kind of a decent scare scene, and it's kind of the same thing with action movies where it's like you have people who just assume that you just do it in this way that was popular, and without actually having the knowledge of why it worked, that it ends up causing a product that is like obviously subpar. And you almost, it happens so much and so often gets kind of like chewed out and spit out and regurgitated that like by the time it kind of reaches a logical conclusion, you've almost kind of forgotten what it was like before that until you watch something that did come before that. And you're like, oh shit, Like <laughs> it's like, this is the way it's supposed to look like this is the way it it should and maybe could work if you knew what you were doing. But the problem is you have people who are like replicating something and replicating. It's like a copy of a copy of a copy. So when you finally get to where you end up, it's just such a fucking mess that you can't even, you, you can't even fathom how you got there. Like you can't even fathom something else. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that was perfectly said. So I'm not going to try to add to it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, one of the things that, because uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit all over the place now, but one of the moments that I still hated, and I knew it was coming <laughs> because it was one of the it's one of the scenes that has stayed with me since the very first time I watched it as a kid, and that is the fact that you know 
Brad gets pissed off that Dalton is essentially messing with his his status in the town. We alluded to it earlier that all of the fancy men, allegedly the fancy men, uh, don't like him, but what can they do about it? He's got the police in his pocket. He's got essentially his own private thugs. They do have guns, even though they don't use them because, you know, they don't want to attract attention. But once Dalton kills Jimmy, all bets are kind of off and Brad's had enough. That's when, you know, he doesn't just stick to blowing up buildings. He really starts going after people. And he flat out tells Dalton, Wade's going to die or Doc's going to die. And uh, the fact that Wade walks into the double deuce covered in blood, looking like, you know, he's just gone 10 rounds with Ivan Drago. And <laughs> he says, you know, <laughs> I'm fine, man. There was three of them and I won. Is a great moment because it's like the old man still got it. And then Dalton assumes that that must mean that there's a group of people going after his girlfriend and they've had an argument. So we'll get to that in a second. But he then, you know, he gets there. She's fine. She's in a hospital. She's like in the safest place she could possibly be, in all honesty. He wouldn't go for her there. But then, of course, he goes back to the double deuce and Wade is lying on the bar. And he thinks that he's gone to sleep, which you could argue is true. But then he rolls him over and he's got a knife in his stomach with a note saying it was Tails, I think. But that—that yeah, that is the most... That is the only point in the film where I know that, you know, I've said it's it's going for a darker tone. It's It's kind of a mature film and blah, 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 blah. I don't care. I get pissed off every time that scene comes on because it's like... He'd already fought people off, damn it. Where were the other fucking bouncers? <laughs> I mean, that people have to have off hours, man. Like, it's clearly, like, the double deuce, it's, it's midday. Like, perhaps people are still asleep. I mean, a bouncer has to rest, Scott. I'm sorry. Weakness. Weakness. <laughs> Wade and Dalton didn't rest, Patrick. They didn't rest. <laughs> Well, they're superhuman. They're 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 the supermen. They're the two best bouncers in the world. Whatever the fuck that means. Well, apparently, it means you can get killed really easily if you see three <laughs> people at you. Sure. But then that 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 does lead into the final sequence of the film, which I I'm gonna pause for a minute because before we talk about that, there is an aspect of this film that we haven't really mentioned outside of a joke, and so I want to ask you, Patrick. How did you find the romance element in this film? Because there is one, and it is kind of a fairly big part of the story, even if it's not, you know, we've managed to basically talk about the whole film without addressing it. I mean, it's, well, yeah, because that's kind of the point, is like, in the end, it was like, there was this weird thing, it still exists, so I guess I shouldn't talk in the past tense, um, where they were like, well, we want women to show up and be entertained, so we're going to throw in, like, a love story. Which, I mean, fine. But, like, I don't... <laughs> I don't ever completely... I mean, I guess it's not just this movie. It's a lot of movies. But, like, I don't necessarily completely buy it. But, like, it's fine. Like, I never, like, am in a position where I'm like... Because also, I will say, at least in this case, it does kind of tie the story together on a personal level that I don't think it would have otherwise. I mean, because... Like, by the end of the movie, it's like... Because it's basically the whole reason, like, Brad Wesley hates Dalton so much is, yes, because he's a challenge to his authority, but it's also because Dalton has his ex-wife. 
And so it's like, and Ben Gazzara just can't deal with the idea of this guy who is already like more badass than him and more loved than him also having the love of his like ex-wife. Just can't live with it. Was, so it's was like, she his ex-wife or was it just the girl that he wanted but couldn't have? I mean, she says like used to be married. So I'm assuming the, the way I interpreted it was that it was his ex-wife. Um, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, so it's like that element of it kind of helps bring it all together. Um, so I guess it is more or less integral to the plot. But in the end, like I feel like most people um, going to action movies probably don't care that much and i feel like the people that were making the movie don't necessarily care that much but like in the end it does tie things together nicely i guess but as you just said it's like we basically have been very e we very easily talked around it for like however long we've been talking so it's clearly not that integral no no i will say though a, I understand exactly what you were trying to say about, you know, you were going to say that all films used to be like this. And I do think that that's accurate because, yes, there is still the, the, the sort of, I'd say, the remnants of this sort of belief that you have to have romance in it if you want to get like a wide audience and you want the female audience to have something to basically watch whilst all of the guys are cheering at all of the fighting and the macho-ness is basically the old-fashioned way of thinking. But you don't really get this anymore because it did used to feel like at one point, no matter what the film was, no matter what the genre was, there must be a romance. And it doesn't matter if it fits or not. It must be crowbarred in, no matter what. There must be a sex scene, no matter what. I'm not complaining, I'm just saying this is how it was. And in this particular film, I do actually have to say that I like how it fits in. It doesn't derail the rest of the story, and the way they meet actually makes sense because she's the doctor that puts him back together. When we were discussing about his original, you know, there is no pain and uses a staple gun and all of that. Yeah. And because he is intelligent and he has a PhD in philosophy and he can, like, essentially impress her with his knowledge, uh, that kind of gets her attention. And they actually develop it naturally throughout the film. For the most part, it's a film. They can't do it really naturally. They can't do it over a series of months. But it is one of those things where I like the fact that it's so detachable from the rest of the film because it, it doesn't get in the way. So many of these romances and so many films end up becoming the third act breakup, which this film does have. But yes. it's very, very short and it doesn't stop and derail the story you could argue it's the reason that wade dies but ultimately he was going to die anyway that's what he was there for he was the old mentor that his death pisses dalton off enough that instead of running away he's going to go full commando on everybody and turn into the very character that he we've said he's not all the way through cue the end fight scene where he turns into a ninja <laughs> part ninja part the predator yeah <laughs> all hero <laughs> <laughs> yes I will say though that for as much as he does kind of turn into this killing machine I don't actually know if he kills everybody or if he just knocks them out they're, you know, some of them do die but some of them don't um, and I don't really care either way because they're all horrible people but <laughs> um, I do like the fact that he's smart enough to know that just rocking up to the house would end very very quickly 
And the fact that he, um, you know, sends his car hurtling towards their house with his, the accelerator pressed down, they shoot the hell out of it. It blows up, gets everybody's attention. It's fantastic practical effects. Again, brilliant stunts, just like the, uh, the monster truck going across the car lot where all the cars get crushed. Love all of that stuff. And then they are like, ha ha. And then they realize he wasn't in the car. And then by the time they've all realized what's happening, half of them are already gone. They're already taken out. Whether they're dead, knocked out, doesn't matter. They're not part of this anymore. And this allows us to have uh, a great stalking sequence where he takes a couple people out that we've seen throughout the film. There's a couple of fights. Then we finally get a showdown with Brad. Now, in a lot of other films, Brad would be easy pickings because all of his men are gone. The right-hand man that was actually the martial artist, the tough guy, is also gone. And Brad would be the guy in a suit that doesn't really have a spine and is easy to push over. But way early on, in almost a throwaway line, they mention that Brad, well, he mentions, in fact, that he came back from Korea, i.e. the Korean War, instantly making him very, very different from a lot of people in suits with a lot of money, because you're actually dealing with someone that he himself saw war and can fight and can shoot. And I really like that because the temptation could have been to just have him be this really easy to kill, you know, uh, scummy begging for his life, sort of trying to weasel his way out of it. But no, Brad's the most dangerous person in the building. And the way that uh, it's played by the actor, I mean, his eyes in this sequence alone, he looks like a serial killer just let loose upon the world. I mean... He has the best villain eyes. I mean, they're like popping out of his skull while he's essentially <laughs> hunting Patrick. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think it's, it's, it's one of the best scenes in the whole film. In a, in a film that is full of great fights, this one is all about who's going to find the other one first and blow the head off, essentially. Well, that's the thing. Like, you mentioned the, like, the Korean War thing, but, but even more than that, like, they basically established very easily, very quickly, that he is like a fucking big game hunter. Yeah. So, like, the way that they're doing it is actually brilliant, because you mentioned the hunting. I'm like, yeah, because basically at that moment, they're kind of both hunting each other. It's like a fucking lion and a tiger fucking going after each other. So it's, like, it's really interesting. Also, the fact that, like, um, they basically even the playing field by um, Wesley being, like, somebody who is very comfortable with guns, whereas Dalton is only using, like, his fists... Um, so it's like that also evens it out quite a bit, even though they've established Dalton as like a seriously credible threat. Um, the fact that you establish that fucking, uh, Ben Gazzaro's character, Brad Wesley is like so skilled with a gun that like, and the way that he's killed all these massive, like apex predators on his own with a gun makes it feel less one-sided than it might otherwise. So it's like, it's not my favorite fight in the movie, but it's definitely a stronger fight than you would think it would be. Yeah, which I think is all you need. It doesn't have to be the highlight. There's already been enough fights that, you know, you've got your, your highlight reel. But the fact that this is, like you say, it's all about hunting patience. And it's, it's basically a battle of wits and mind, which perfectly encapsulates the fact that Dalton is different. And Wesley isn't the pushover that many people might have assumed that he was going to be. And then, of course, we get the ultimate twist. Dalton doesn't kill him. 
And we go right back to where we started at, at this conversation that Kevin Ty, who <laughs> looks like a villain, who talks like a villain, comes in in a black leather coat, looking like the James Bond villain of a film that was never made, with a double barreled shotgun, and is just like, this is my house now. <laughs> and I just, I just love that so much. And like all the other uh, guys that have basically been pushed around by him coming with their rifles or their shotguns, whatever it might be. And all, as you alluded to way back at the start of this conversation, they blow him up, basically. And the effects, the squibs are glorious. Yeah, it's like one of my favorite things. Like I, I really miss um like in modern like really i mean modern action movies in general is i mean granted i get it in the case of like let's say like superhero movies because like that's not meant to be real it's meant to be basically i mean it's 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 fantasy um so i get it but like in the case of like even like you have like regular action movies you very rarely get like really cool like big fucking like screen explosions anymore and like when you recognize it when you're watching a movie from like the 80s or 90s it's just, I don't know, it's, there's something that's weirdly, like, primal about it. Like, it's really, really, I, I love it so much. And like, when he gets fucking shot, and, like, the fucking blood just, like, explodes out of this motherfucker. It is so fucking glorious. Like, it is so cool. Like, glorious slow motion. Blood's going everywhere. Brad Gazzara's, like, reacting to it. It's just so fucking awesome. Like, it's just a beautiful visual, just, feast. Like, it's just wonderful to look at. Yeah, and and, and it also, you know, what works for me on a thematic level is Dalton hasn't just come in with his superior skills as a fighter. His his bounciness that he's the best <laughs> in the world isn't what has won the day. It's the fact that he has essentially awoken the town. He He's essentially pulled them back up and made them look at themselves and go, this is our town. How did we let things get to this point? And you know, Dalton did the hard work. He killed Jimmy. He's taken out the men. He's ruffled feathers. But Wesley pushed people to the point that they were going to start pushing back. And the fact that Dalton essentially gave them a trumpet charge so that they, you know, they could rally behind something. And the fact that they will essentially show up in secret and kill him before anybody else can get there is perfect. I, I love the fact that that is what wins the day, that Dalton has essentially rescued the town from their own inability to act. And, you know, well, not inability is maybe the wrong word, but eventually that is what it is. And the fact that they also have planned this. This isn't just them showing up because Dalton's in trouble. They had planned this because once they do kill him, they get rid of the guns. They get rid of any evidence that anyone, including Dalton, was actually there to cause brad harm and then when the actual police show up that are obviously on the payroll everybody says we didn't see anything which is exactly obviously what everybody kept doing for brad and allowed him to get away with everything and what i really love is jack played by travis mckenna who's kind of but not really the comedy relief even though he's also a bad guy he oh, manages Dick. to yeah. live <laughs> yeah and uh when they ask him like what happened he sides with the, the guys that just killed his boss, essentially, because he don't really like his boss any more than most of them did. You know, it's like, of course, why would you be loyal to him? He was a total asshole to everyone in his life. And I love that so much. No, yeah, like the <laughs> bear fell on me. 
I knew that it ends on a laugh after they've had the most, most like fucking disturbing fucking like fight with ends in like blood sh- like massive bloodshed and it's like hey look at like a little poke in the ribs like the bear fell on the fat one hey I'm just like it's a weird fucking filmmaking choice but I'm not against it yeah yeah, and the uh, the other th- the other thing I made a note of was that you you kind of mentioned it earlier, but I love the friendship between Dalton and Cody and Jeff Healy and the band. They are one of my favorite aspects of this film. It doesn't really play into the story, which is why I've not mentioned it before. But the music in this film is fantastic. I love all the tracks, and I love the fact that they're played mostly by the Jeff Healy band and. He plays the character really well, and and like you said, the fact that they know each other beforehand, he can be that sort of narrator that's sort of telling everybody the legend of Dalton. But that isn't all he is. He does genuinely get other stuff to do. He does have actual, like, character. Maybe not character development, but he does get some cool lines, and he's basically the backing track to the whole film, and I can't remember the last time a film kind of did that, and it, it really makes it stand out. I genuinely don't understand why this film sometimes gets a rep as being a bad film. Well, I do, just by virtue of the fact that, like, it depends. It's like, okay, it's for one thing, I would just say right at the gate, which I think I've said on here before, I've definitely said on Chainsaws and Claws before, I don't think there is such thing as good art or bad art, like, whether it be a film, comic book, like, regular book, like, song, whatever. It's like, everything is what you like whatever you get out of something is whatever you get out of something it doesn't make it good like 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 skinnamarink is a horror movie it's currently making the rounds and every fucking review i see of it on letterbox is either in the, the four plus star range or in the like one star range like, there's nothing in the middle and that doesn't mean that like it's a bad movie or a good movie it just means it's a movie that like exists and you get what you get out of it so it's like the thing with like um action movies and horror movies, like, I feel like, I mean, I guess genre in general is you have people who kind of, and again, I, I feel like I kind of was this for a period when I was, like, younger, where I was kind of snobby, where you have this idea that, like, these things are, like, because they are kind of vaguely silly in their tone, like, at least, or there's, like, a tongue-in-cheek element to their tone, uh, you look at them in a way where they're like they're not intending to be like the movie you're, you're you're kind of looking at them ironically and I don't necessarily think that's the case with this movie but I feel like that's kind of the reason they got that rep where it's like because it has kind of such a like it has the tone that it has where it's not taking itself super super seriously for most of the runtime that like people see that and they almost like pounce on it like it's blood in the water where it's like ha ha look at this stupid movie and i was like but i don't think that that it, it, you can it, by watching the movie like despite the guy's name being fucking rowdy um it's not a poorly directed film by any stretch of the imagination and it's not a poorly acted film it's not a particularly poorly written film i mean it's very kind of basic but it's not like it's poorly written by any stretch of the imagination it's just that it it's not trying to be anything more than it is that I feel like people look at it in a way that is dismissive and that is honestly on them. Like, it's like, if you can't watch like 
a really good, like, or a really fun um, action movie, horror movie, sci-fi movie, whatever the fuck you want to watch. If you can't watch it and engage with it, that's on you. Like, because it's like, there's a reason that this movie has, like, the popularity it has had for literal decades now. Like, it's been, like, more than 30 years. And it's because it accomplishes its goals. Like, it's, it's trying to be this movie, and it's very, it accomplishes that. It's very good at doing what it's trying to do. So, like, people are going to be fucking pricks about it, and that's fine. But, like, it's, I remember, like, when I came, like, when, like, Snakes on a Plane came out, I was working in a video store, and people were, like, making fun of that movie. And I'm just like, it's called Snakes on a fucking Plane. Like, what the fuck were you expecting? It's like, Roadhouse is about the guy who's somehow the best fucking bouncer in the world. It's inherently insane. So just either you go with the ride or you don't. If you if you don't, that's fine, but don't make fun of the fucking movie because you refuse to engage with it on its level. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree. Again, it perfectly said. I'm I'm not going to try and add on to that. I do think that that is a big problem with people in general. I remember Matt and I, I think it was Matt. We were talking off air, and one of the conversations we had was like, I think he he or someone he knew had seen like a a John Woo film in cinema and everybody was laughing at it because they'd gone to see it ironically like like this shit is hilarious and i think they got to the stage where like someone had to basically tell everybody to shut up because it was like no 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 no, this is serious like don't laugh through the film because there are people that are actually trying to you know enjoy this properly and like people didn't didn't really know what to do because they were like well well, how can you take this seriously and it's like well if you're not going to take this seriously then why the fuck are you here yeah you you know i I don't understand that mindset i i I can laugh at a film i mean i've watched uh the night comes for us two or three times and the first time i watched it i watched it with someone who was laughing at stroke with it and we were in hysterics but i've watched it a second time with jade and she took it dead seriously and so no laughter and it's like sometimes it does depend who you're watching the film with and what and what they're like but you know if you're going to go to the cinema especially it's like take it seriously like think of the other people who are in that cinema screening it's one of the things that really irritates me when people i feel like have just forgotten how to be courteous to those around them you know well because people don't give a fuck about anything anything the pandemic has taught us people don't give a fuck about anybody but themselves so well, like yeah. whatever, like fuck, like fuck people. I don't. I, it is what it is. But it's like I do think, like yeah, like I, the whole thing of like irony, um, the proliferation of irony, um, and like ironic viewing of movies has been really fucking toxic. And I'm really, really hoping. It seems like like Maverick is a really good example of a movie. That is not a single fucking second of irony. It is very, very sincere. And I I hope that is a trend that will continue because of how successful that movie was. Because that's the whole thing is like, and I don't, it, it, I, I will say before I even say this, it doesn't bother me. But like, it's, there's this thing a lot of the time, and not just superhero movies now, but like, I, it's, I, I feel like a lot, that's the first thing I'm gonna, people are going to think of when I say it, where you're watching a movie and they like feel the need to like make like kind of take the piss out of it while you're watching it and it's like 
you don't necessarily have to do that. It's like it's like you you are afraid of somebody making fun of you, so you make the joke first, and that's not necessary. Like it's like because if you can't appreciate a movie without making fun of it, then you shouldn't be watching the fucking movie. Like because it's like that's my whole thing. Is like I feel like a lot of people like it's like if you like look like Letterboxd. Like if you if if you're only, if you're only ever giving like one and two star reviews, I'm like maybe you just don't like movies. Like, it's like, my whole thing is like, so it's like, if you walked into Roadhouse and you weren't prepared to just enjoy it, like, cause you, I feel like I walk into every movie I walk into hoping to love it. And if I, if I don't, whatever, it, like many things fall in, in like the three to four star range, but I walk into everything hoping it'll be five stars. And I feel like a lot of people don't do that. And I feel like that, I don't understand it because it's like you're fucking yourself out of an experience. So it's like, it's just, it's how people engage with art is really fucking weird. And I'm hoping that we're swinging back in a better direction now because like, I feel like the people that watched Roadhouse when it came out, whether you thought it was insane or not, um, I think the people that like still talk about it, they got to see it in that time are the people who did engage with it on that level. And I feel like that's, always a more enjoyable way to go like it's like it's better to just enjoy something for what it is than to just like call it like a guilty pleasure and be like i hate that like i hate it so much and it's like it's like it's like you 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 don't get to like fucking like something but also make fun of it at the same time like that's fucked like that's like it's like even if it's like totally ridiculous like you have to like look at the intent of what it was engage with that level or else you're just an asshole to me yeah no perfectly said um i find it interesting too because uh according to the the people that made the film they actually blamed its poor box office performance on the fact that the marketing was very misleading and that they tried to advertise it as a very lighter comedic movie because they wanted to attract the female audience that had seen Dirty Dancing, apparently. And uh, for obvious reasons, that didn't work, because the <laughs> film ain't like that in the slightest. I mean, the, only th- the other thing, though, too, is I feel like it was also, I've talked about this like, in general, um, that like the like late 80s and like most of the 90s were kind of a really fucking weird time for genre film, especially. Because, like, people had kind of... It had gotten so saturated in terms of, like, horror and... Com- and, like, horror and action. And, like, kind of, like, the, like, sameness comes in. And, like, the kind of the topping of what you've seen before comes in. And it's why you end up, like, by, like, the late 80s where, like, the lowest grossing chapters of, like, these movies. Like, whether it be, like, Nightmare on the Street 5 or, like, this movie, like, Roadhouse, whatever. I feel like it's because, like, audiences in general were, like, looking for something different which is why you end up having the independent like thing that happened in the nineties because people were kind of going in another direction. But also I feel like a lot of those things ended up being kind of reclaimed as like gems, like overlooked gems because like people weren't looking for it at the time, but like when you divorce it from its time period, because I think of the roadhouse is like, it doesn't really like scream eighties in a lot of ways. Like, there's not initially, like, I mean, in some of the decor and stuff, I guess, but, like, it doesn't necessarily scream 80s, 
so I think that's why it kind of managed to kind of maintain kind of a slow momentum of people kind of getting into it over the years is like, cause once people kind of swung back in the direction where they wanted genre, it's a really good example of something you can watch and be like, yeah, like, fuck. Yeah. Like I can watch, like, it's like, I love action movies. I'm going to watch roadhouse and like being like legitimately excited about it. And it, it's something you can watch in 95 or 2005 or 2015. And it still feels the same. And that actually, I think, works really well in its favor. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I agree. I'm I'm hopeful that everything will turn back around, same as you. It's one of those things where I understand the appeal and why it's gone the way it's gone, and it a lot of it is a generational thing as well. And you know, it's not going to go away completely because there's a whole group of people that this is going to be them probably forever. Um, they, some will change, some won't. Just like it's the same as some people are always going to live in the eighties or the nineties or the early two thousands, whatever, whatever period of time they felt the most connected to. But at the same time, you know, you can learn to appreciate stuff that isn't necessarily what you want and what you would vibe with. But I do also find it interesting that, like you say, what sometimes doesn't perform well at the box office the home release does really well and this one did and you know it's had a cult following for a very long time and as you said people are still talking about it decades later and i find it really interesting that considering how many times this happens it does kind of make me chuckle that i have said previously I don't really pay much attention to critics and you know if you look at what critics make of this film compared to what audiences make of this film and the cult following it has I uh, you know it's one of those films where I'm like yeah well say what you like I still enjoy it I don't care you know <laughs> yeah no I mean like, yeah that's like, I mean that's the whole thing in general it's like I, it's like, it's also funny that like we're currently um like on the cusp of getting um like a remake of it um yeah. and like but as the same like for better or worse but like i i am genuinely curious how they do it but at the same time it won't affect my enjoyment of this movie as it exists but like it's i feel like that's also just the case in general is it's like when things do find an audience then that becomes the thing of like well how do we now sell to this audience because that was the thing i remember that was like kind of Patrick Swayze is almost kind of like the I mean, I guess some of his stuff was also theatrically um, did well, like Ghost and Dirty Dancing, but all like, a ton of his shit, like Roadhouse, uh, Donnie Darko, um, I think Point Break wasn't super successful until like video, but I could be wrong. Um, but like, it's like a lot of that stuff did take the like eventual like home release for it to find its audience, but I feel like things that are that do have something to them that is worthwhile will always find one like it's like to the extent like it's like i feel like there are occasionally movies that like fall through the cracks but even then like, like there's tons of things today where like you'll find things like vinegar syndrome or whoever is putting out and it's like something you barely remembered existed except for remembered liking it and then it's like oh shit it becomes like this huge thing like like fade to black the horror movie like i hadn't even heard of it until like a few years ago and then like vinegar syndrome released the blu-ray and it became like a huge thing in the horror community for like a hot minute so it's like i feel like that's the whole thing is like in the end if something is worthwhile it will eventually find an audience it just might not find it right away 
Yes, and I, I and that's that's fine. Like I'm happy that that does happen. And in the case of Roadhouse, it's perfect. Like I'm not sure how I feel about the remake, but that, I don't want to get into that because that will keep us going for another half an hour. <laughs> but but also, you know, I, I think there is a sequel in inverted commas that was made like there years is. later. I never saw it, but yeah, I, it does it with John Shrek. Um, yeah, that's it. But um, yeah, but it, but. I don't think I would have wanted a sequel even if one was offered because it's such a self-contained story. Yeah. However, I do detest the fact that, as you say, films that find their audience and find their money later in life, I detest the fact that they get judged by how they first performed and they don't look at their overall impact and sales because that's why we only got one Dread, even though it, it, yeah. it sold stupid amounts of money on the home release when everybody realized the film existed and it wasn't competing yeah. with say the avengers yeah <laughs> again that's a whole nother argument and trust me that episode will be coming in the future but there is one last thing i want to say before we wrap this up because i you know i alluded to it earlier and then through sheer coincidence uh as i was scrolling through the the mass of trivia there's more trivia than i even want to read myself there's so much of it <laughs> But they actually mentioned the Family Guy episode that that we alluded to earlier. And the episode is Brian's got a brand new bag. And the entire episode is about, well, not the entire episode, but basically Peter Griffin buys Roadhouse on DVD at a going out business sale at Cohawk Video. After watching the film, Peter comically decides that all of life's problems can be solved by kicking it. After kicking his target, he would then say the film's title as a catchphrase, as we discussed earlier. Why am I saying all of this? The episode was dedicated to Patrick Swayze because the episode was actually done after he had sadly passed away of pancreatic cancer. So that explains why there is an entire running gag about Roadhouse. It was actually done in tribute to Patrick Swayze, and that has completely changed my opinion of that entire episode. Yes, indeed. Like, I mean, I, I, I do think, yeah, I, I, it, it does suck that we lost Patrick Swayze. I mean, it sucks that he just, that, I mean, for just him and his family, I've said that he died so young. But, like, because, like, he never really stopped doing, like, interesting work. Because as you mentioned, like, The Beast. Um, I thought that show was cool, too. So it's, like, I definitely think that he had more to give. But, like, the fact that he left behind, like, the amount of stuff he left behind is, like, legitimately, like, classic shit is mm. nothing to sneeze at, honestly. No. No, I mean, there are actors all over the world that would kill to have his filmography. Yeah. So, God bless that, Roger, that Magic Swayze. And on that bombshell, I think I can safely say that we have come to a close on our discussion about Roadhouse. I want to thank Patrick again for joining me. It is always a pleasure to have you on. And also, because we didn't really do it at the beginning, where can people find you? Because unlike the last time you were on, I think, you now have your own podcast. Yes, uh, I do Chainsaws and Claws with uh, Rob, Rob Antiquera, who is also a uh, frequent guest of this show. Um, yep. You can find us on Twitter at Chainsaw's Claws. Um, you can find me personally at uh, Alleyway Crew, Crew with a K. Um, but also the Chainsaw's Claws is like the Twitter and the Instagram. Um, and yeah, if you want to hear us talk about monster movies and slash movies, you can do that too. That's like, that's where else I exist. And also my random thoughts on film exist on Twitter <laughs> fairly frequently as well. Well then, welcome to the podcasting club. I... I think I did say this to you uh, one of the last times you were on, like maybe you guys were just getting started. I can't quite remember, but 
I wish I could sit and listen to you guys' episodes, but I have genuinely have seen like maybe two of the films you've covered. <laughs> I've actually gotten that more than once. People were like, I really want to listen to this, but like, I haven't seen the movies. I'm like, just who, who the fuck cares? Like, I was like, first of all, yes, you should see the movies, but I was just like, it just, you'll get the second hand from us. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> no, I am going to give it a go because, um, I don't tend, I, I, I tried to, to start going down the road of watching horror stuff because as I've said before, I'm not a horror person. I've never been a horror person, but I have enjoyed the ones I've seen for the most part. And there are ones that sort of cross over with action and there are types of supernatural stuff that I just like because it's supernatural. I don't care that it's, it's quote unquote horror, but Jade is a horror person. And so we kind of started watching a lot of horror stuff. Well, the problem is, is that I very quickly realized Jade's taste in horror and mine are opposite. Jade likes, <laughs> Jade likes what I would consider realistic horror stuff or the psychological horror stuff. And whilst I don't mind it, I like the supernatural stuff, the slasher stuff. And Jade's like, yeah, I've kind of seen all of that. So. That didn't last very long, is my point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you must soldier on, because apparently you have similar tastes to my own in Rob's. So like, you must soldier on, Scott. I uh, Well, the thing is, I, I, I will stroke am, but obviously it takes a backseat to watching action movies for the show. And I'm also trying to like broaden out into countries that I've not really got much experience with, such as the Indian action movies and... Uh, Lindsay and Marcy are both like telling me that I need to try some Italian movies that I've never seen. So I kind of got my hands full at the minute. So it's like, <laughs> I'm not going to worry about the horror stuff. I'll watch it when I'm good and ready. But uh, that's going to end it here, folks. And I will hand you over to the me of the future to tell you what's coming next. All right, you've made it. You're at the end. I do apologize if my voice sounds a bit uh, tired today because I am. And uh, I'm doing my best to try and not sound like I am just desperately trying to get to the end of this, because I'm not. But <laughs> I am aware that I do kind of sound like that, so I'm trying to, like, put some energy into the voice to make it sound a bit more peppy. Anyway, that was Roadhouse. I hope you enjoyed it. Patrick and I had a lot of fun talking about it, as you can tell. And I wasn't just saying it for the sake of saying it. Marshall Teague will be back, perhaps not in the capacity that people expect. But perhaps uh, some people have hoped for, if they've actually listened to the episode, there was kind of a, uh, what many probably assumed was a throwaway line of dialogue that we will, we will be trying to make reality. So stay tuned for that. You will probably hear Marshall at least one more time on the show. The next few episodes are already kind of set in stone because essentially I'm kind of behind in terms of where I want it to be uh, numbers wise. Part, some of that is just because we've had a lot going on and it's been, you know, really busy and hectic and blah 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 but some of that is just because i'm bad at maths and i kind of worked out my timings all horrifically wrong even if i hadn't uh missed a week we still wouldn't be where i wanted to be uh essentially i wanted to have my episode 50 coming out around about now and that's not gonna happen because you know we're still like five episodes away from episode 50 so yeah Either way, the next episode, I was thinking about changing it because of how everything's ended up unfolding, but I'm going to keep 
the order as recorded, simply due to the fact that if I don't, we are essentially going to have three 80s classics in a row. The next episode, which I debated doing as a bonus episode, but it's a, it's a full episode because it's another long one and there's two guests and it's different. It's very different because this is, I think, the first episode that isn't a film, which is something that we've said from the very word go. Uh, I'm pretty sure it says it in my bio on Twitter that we cover both film and television. Ironically, this isn't a television show we're going to do. This is actually the first web series that we're going to do. This is a fan-made production, and it is for a show that is known as Power Rangers Unworthy. This show, man, if you're unfamiliar with it, look it up on YouTube. Honestly, it is far better than it has any right to be. It has like four episodes up right now. They're all like 20 minutes long. Well, they're mostly 20 minutes long. And there's a couple of little extra episodes in between. And we're going to talk about all of them. There are more episodes coming. So there may be a follow-up part two where we cover the stuff that comes out once it has actually finished. I won't keep doing one as just random episodes drop. But I hope you're excited for that. Like I said, it's going to be an episode that has two guests. One is a returning guest, and that is Aaron Vargas. And the other is a brand new guest, which I'm going to leave as a surprise. But he is a writer for a pretty well-known publication, so I was pretty excited to have him on. He really knows his PR stuff, because he's kind of written a lot of articles about them. And Aaron really knows, obviously, his stunt stuff. And he may or may not even know some of the people in this production. And we may even know some of the people in this production if you've listened to the Art School Dropouts episode. Hint, 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 hint. Anyway, that's all we got for today, folks. Thank you very much for listening to the end. It's been a heck of a long one, and uh, yeah, I'm going to be trying my damned hardest to really put some episodes out over the next couple of weeks to get us to episode 50, and uh, I hope you guys are going to enjoy the ride, because I think every single episode we've got coming up, well, for the next five episodes, <laughs> they are all amazing films, so... So take care of yourselves, and I shall see you in the next one. On the action!